Yankton elders told a story of a group of Potawatomi and Miami who made their way west to find new land. The Potawatomi tried to claim the hills and the Great Spring for their own, but the Yankton were a proud warrior people and would not allow their territory to be taken without a fight. Near the side of the Big Spring, a great and terrible battle ensued. The Potawatomi were led by a war chief with a legendary name, Little Turtle. Chief Little Turtle may have wielded the pistols and sword personally gifted to his family by George Washington into the battle, but the Yankton were great warriors fighting for their own land, and in the end, the Potawatomi were defeated. Little Turtle died bravely and was honored by the Yankton. They buried him at the highest point overlooking the land that Little Turtle had hoped would be the new promised land for his people. The Yankton marked his grave with two stone turtle mosaics on the ground. On this episode, we tell the story of a place where pioneers tell stories of terrible killings and forgotten lore, where horse thieves and night riders ruled and cast a shadow over the entire eastern half of Dakota Territory, and legendary Deadwood lawmen feared to tread, a place called the Wessington Hills. The Sioux Empire. We live here, but what do we really know about this land we call home? Many of us were born here writing our story. Many are new here, with new parts of the story to tell. And some of us were always here, but their stories, while not always told, have never been forgotten. This is the Sioux Empire Podcast. Stories about the Sioux Empire you've never heard in the Sioux Empire. started a little business this month. I just wanted to say that if you're looking for something to laugh about, you should check out my friend Dan Bubbitz Jr.'s podcast, The Art of Bombing. Traveling comedians share their stories about their most embarrassing onstage moments and what they learned from them. It's a fascinating and hilarious look behind the microphone of working comedians. That's The Art of Bombing, available on all major podcast platforms. I also want to give a big shout out to Peter Pischke and his The Happy Warrior podcast. If you like political podcasts, you should check out his show. That's The Happy Warrior podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. And finally this month, a special thanks to John E. and Leah S. for your donations to the Sioux Empire podcast. Your donations help me access more books, more research databases, and other resources that I can't access otherwise, and that help keep this show going. Donations are accepted on Venmo and Patreon. More details about how you can help out at the end of the show. Thank you. So this episode started out as a pretty straightforward chronology of the history of the Wessington Hills area of South Dakota. Why the Wessington Hills? Well, it's part nepotism and part host discretion. I grew up in the Wessington, South Dakota area, and exploring the history of my hometown and the region is part of what inspired me to become such a history nerd. So in a way, uh, this podcast wouldn't exist without the stories and legends of the Wessington Hills. 
So in another way, you could think of this as a deep dive meta prequel into the podcast itself. The second reason is that this is a little known area of South Dakota, other than by people who still live in the area, yet it has a rich and a fascinating history to explore that many who live there even today uh, might not be aware of. My hope is this episode is the epitome of the show's new tagline, stories about the Sioux Empire you've never heard in the Sioux Empire. So if I had to pick a relatively obscure piece of eastern South Dakota history to start with, my home region seemed like a logical place to start. So like I said, this started as a straightforward chronology like the last two episodes, but then it hit a little bit of a road bump. This episode, more than the others, is going to go into pre-settlements, pre-settlement events, where often oral history and very limited scholarly research are all we have to go on for sources. So you'll notice uh, as we go that a number of points in the timeline may splinter into different versions of the same story. For example, we're going to be talking a lot about figuring out how this region got its name. The name Wessington itself has turned out to be a complex enough story that I could almost make that into its own episode. Before we let things get too complicated and add too many moving parts to the narratives, let's start with something basic. Let's define the area of the Wessington Hills and the geology of the area. I know it's geology, it's not exciting for everyone, but this is important to understand why these hills are so important to the natives, the settlers, and anyone in a pre-industrial society trying to survive in this area, and why this area is such a great strong point for outlaws. According to Google, the Wessington Hills is a mountain in South Dakota that has an elevation of 1,785 feet. To be more precise, the Wessington Hills are actually a glacial moraine between the James River and Missouri River Valleys, created around 20,000 years ago. Moraines consist of loose sediment and rock debris distributed by glacial ice known as till. They may also contain slope, fluvial, and lake and marine sediments if such material is present at the margin of the glacier, where it may be incorporated with the glacial ice as the glacier advances, or deformed by glacier movement. The eastern part of this particular moraine is a flat, rich land that once laid at the bottom of glacial Lake Dakota. The Wessington Hills are a recessional moraine, which basically means that while this is a very large range, it is not the furthest extent of the glacier that once covered all of eastern South Dakota, but it's more like a large echo or aftershock that came after the glacier's first wave of major decline and melt-off began to break off. We make a big deal in South Dakota about East River and West River geographically and culturally, but the Wessington Hills moraine is in fact the true geological boundary marker. The hills are not only set apart from other more prairie-locked communities. Longtime Wessington Springs publisher and local historian Duke Wenzel once said, The hills also act as a perfect dividing line between the tall and short grass prairie, between farming and ranching country, between eastern and western South Dakota. Thousands of years of rain would erode the moraine and produce numerous draws across the range. A draw is a terrain feature formed by two parallel ridges or spurs of low ground in between them. The area of low ground itself is the draw, and it's defined by the spurs of land surrounding it. Draws are similar to valleys, but on a smaller scale. However, valleys are by their nature considered parallel with the ridgeline. A draw is perpendicular to the ridgeline, and it rises with the surrounding ground disappearing up a slope. A draw is usually etched into the hillside by water flow and is usually dry, but it may contain seasonal streams or loose rocks from eroded rockfall. In a draw, the ground always slopes downward from a draw in only one direction and upward in three. 
the slope of a draw is generally quite sharp, with a clearly established fall line that is characterized by a generally steep vertical drop over a short horizontal distance. This, combined with random large boulders and washouts, can make the terrain hard to move on by foot, and can be very challenging for horses, pickups, ATVs, and about every other contraption you can imagine chasing cattle or people through these hills on. Especially if the person or cattle being pursued know a safe path and the pursuer does not. Stick a pin in that, it comes up later. Further complicating movement through the hills is the tree growth in the draws. The draws consolidate moisture of an area in a way that uh, the flat prairie does not, while offering shelter from South Dakota's legendary straight-line winds that uh, destroy so many trees every year in the region. Some draws have sparse vegetation, while others are large enough to support significant stands of cottonwoods, willows, and sycamores. The hills also enjoy abundant and diverse wildlife. Before settlement, it was an especially heavily trafficked area by grazing buffalo as well as a number of species of deer and antelope. Wetter areas, such as lakes and springs, supported large numbers of minks, otters, beavers, muskrats, and raccoons. The following account of life in the Westington Hills before white settlers came to the area is based on interviews with a Sioux elder named Eugene Brother of All, conducted sometime around the 1970s in Fort Thompson, South Dakota. Another elder, August with a horn, described the seasonal cycle that life in the area had been before white settlement. The tribe would start from an area where they wintered, which was sometimes at Skunk Island on the Missouri River, and traveled up north, up into the Sisseton area, and often even as far as the Canadian border. They would then swing back down along the James River into the Redfield area, where they would spend some time and harvest corn that had either grown up volunteer or perhaps had been planted in the spring. They would then swing down the Wessington Hills, where they would spend the fall. The hills were famous for their game. There were often buffalo in the hills. There were many beavers and deer, as well as turkeys. They spent their winters close to the water and in the big timber because of the protection there. There is some archaeological evidence that winter camps were also made in the Wessington Hills. In the summer, they avoided the lakes and rivers because of the mosquitoes and preferred to stay in the hills where there was a breeze. These hills also made it more difficult for enemies to sneak up on a village. Game is still abundant in the Wessington Hills to this day. I grew up hunting mule deer in those draws, and they are extremely numerous almost every season. When I was in college, say around 2005-ish, the Game Fish and Park started a program to reintroduce turkeys to the area of the hills where I grew up. From what I can tell from the stories my siblings who still live in that area tell me, the program has been fairly successful. So the traditionally known tribes of the Wessington Hills area are the Yankton, the Yanktoni, and some Santee. There are some stories about Tetons in the area, but historians are skeptical that they spent much time there. It's much more likely that they passed through or met up with the Yanktons in the area to trade. Multiple sources indicate that a major battle between the Yankton and the Potawatomi happened near the Big Spring, as described in our intro. Many Yankton elders, including August with the Horn, told the story of how Chief Little Turtle was killed in the battle and was buried by the Yankton on a point in the hills then known as Turtle Peak. Turtle Peak is two miles north of Wessington Springs. Speaking of Wessington Springs, and more specifically the name Wessington, it's time to talk about where that name came from. Well, maybe. 
First, some background of the very earliest of the European interaction with this area. The area we now call the Westington Hills was claimed by France in the middle of the 17th century, and it was about that time that there is some evidence that the first European traders passed through the territory. Though little to no permanent settlement happened in this area during that time, it was still fully under the control of the Yangtin Sioux. With the 1806 Louisiana Purchase, the region became territory of the United States. Still, this area would remain the most distant and fringe of the United States frontier and would be considered wild territory for a long time. There was trade and exploration along the Missouri River, but the Westington Hills being away from these waters was not easily traveled to. Because of overhunting of buffalo and other parts of Dakota Territory, there were few of them left in the eastern half of the state by the mid-1800s. So few that any Yankton living in the Westington Hills would not have found enough to sustain their way of life in that area. A military expedition known as the Warren Expedition in October of 1856 noted that the buffalo were already greatly depleted in the area. Here are some notes from that expedition's logs. In 1850, buffalo were seen as low down on the Missouri as the Vermilion River, and in 1854, a few were killed near Fort Pier, but at present, none, unless they be a stray bull, are seen below Fort Clark. Even at the base of the Black Hills, it would be difficult for a party of hunters to support themselves by hunting. The officer goes on to note the effect this was having on the Yankton, and would over time have on most of the tribes of the American West. It is not as many suppose that in those Indians are disposed to retire further west. This they cannot do, for the regions to the west of one tribe are occupied by another for whom deadly animosity exists. Hence, while the white settlements advance their frontiers, the natives linger about until disease, poverty, and vicious indulgences consign them to oblivion. The present policy of our government seems therefore to be best calculated as a way that could be devised for the extermination of the Indians. The Yankton Sioux ceded rights to the region by treaty on April 19, 1856. In 1857, William Nobles, a retired U.S. Army colonel, realized that there was money to be made in being the first to settle an area. So when Congress set aside money to develop wagon roads to the west, he helped found the Dakota Land Company Incorporated. With some well-placed bribes in the Minnesota legislature, they secured tons of exclusive rights to ferry traffic across the James River, the Sioux River, and the Missouri Rivers. But the same political games that allowed him to gain this position also backfired when an enemy gained a position of power in Washington and cut off funding for Nobles Road. Still convinced that he could make this work, Nobles assembled and equipped all the men needed to build a wagon road across the region. The Dakota War of 1862, also known as the Sioux Uprising, the Dakota Uprising, the Sioux Outbreak of 1862, the Dakota Conflict, and Little Crow's War was an armed conflict between the United States and several bands of Dakota, also known as the Eastern Sioux. It began on August 17, 1862, 
along the Minnesota River in southwest Minnesota. Through the late 1850s in the lead-up to the war, treaty violations by the United States and the late annuity payments to Indian agents caused increasing hunger and hardship among the Dakota. During the war, the Dakota made extensive attacks on hundreds of settlers and immigrants, which resulted in settler deaths and caused many to flee. This ended with soldiers capturing hundreds of Dakota men and their families. A military tribunal tried the men, sentencing 303 of them to death for their crimes. President Lincoln would later commute the sentence of 264 of them. The mass hanging of the 38 Dakota men was conducted on December 26, 1862 in Mankato, Minnesota. It was the largest mass execution in United States history. The Dakota War of 1862 is an extremely important event to the history of South Dakota and practically defines the region that we now call the Sioux Empire. So while I can only give it to you as basic background now, we'll eventually do a whole episode or possibly multiple episodes just on the events of that war down the road. So how that ties in is that the classic version of the story of Wessington goes like this account found in a book titled A History of Gerald County, published in 1910. Also, just a heads up, this being written in 1910, it is not terribly PC in its descriptions of natives. Quote, Even the man for whom was named the range of hills that run north and south through the center of this country is only known to have been a trapper who frequented the lakes and streams in this part of the great territory prior to 1863. Of him is related that he, in the company of the other trappers, was engaged in the usual avocation along the fire steel and sand creeks at the time of the Indian uprising in New Ulm, Minnesota in 1863. Side note here, the book is actually incorrect. The uprising took place from August 17th to December 26th, 1862, which this might be your first clue that this story has some issues. Anyway, it continues. The whole western country was then swarming with hostile bodies of Sioux. As these bands were driven westward by soldiers from Minnesota, the trappers were caught in the line of retreat taken by the savages. Wessington and his companions took refuge in a grove near the Big Spring. For several days the trappers fought off their enemies, but provisions and ammunition failing, they attempted to break through and escape. One by one they fell, selling their lives as dearly as possible. Wessington was the last of their number. He was wounded and captured. Taking him back to the grove, where he and his friends had made such a gallant fight, the Indians tied him to a tree and put him to death by torture. The story of his capture and death is told by the Indians. Various trees about the spring have been pointed out in later years as the spot where the trapper met his death. This was the last of the Indian raids in this country between the Missouri and the James Rivers. During the next 15 years, the Sand Creek and Firesteel Valleys and the Wessington Hills were mainly occupied by peaceful Indians and trappers and horse thieves. So the earliest written record that we have of this version of events comes from the Wessington Springs Herald newspaper, which wrote a story of the area covering this history in their front page on January 4th of 1884. At the time of the memorable Minnesota Massacre of 1862, there were a number of trappers who visited the hills regularly on hunting excursions. One of these trappers was named Wessington. When attacked by the Indians, they fled to the hills, but were pursued and killed near the Big Spring. In honor of this man, who thus offered up his life and mingled his own heart's blood with the waters gushing from these rocks, the hills and the springs have since been known by the name Wessington. Among the settlers and old-timers of the Wessington Hills area, this version of events is by far the most popular, and it's probably the story that every farm and ranch kid in the area is still being told by their parents and passed down from their parents. 
There is some regional variation. In the northern part of the Westington Hills where I grew up, he's almost always burned at the stake. The account from 1910 simply seems to imply that he was flayed, but what they all share in common is that a trapper was killed very violently by the Sioux in this area. While the 1910 book version states that the story is told by Indians, this is apparently news to the Indians, or at least the Yankton Sioux. Tribal elders that we mentioned earlier who were interviewed on this topic in the 1970s and earlier deny that their people would have harmed any trappers in the Hills area. The Yankton used the Hills, and especially the area by the Big Spring, as a meeting and trading area. There are even more problems with this story, but we'll get to them shortly. The area's first unofficial historian, Reverend A.B. Smart, who arrived in the area in 1880, wrote a series of historical articles for the local newspaper that we just mentioned. One of which contained the following. What of Noble's oxes, team masters named Wessington, first discovered the springs, and they have borne his name ever since. There has been another story that he was killed by Indians, but I have not been able to find any foundation of it. I think this is doubtful. So Rev Smart is talking about a different theory that's also very common among some of the more well-read theorists on how the hills got their name. It has to do with that Nobles Road expedition we talked about earlier that was having issues with funding that came through the area. From the Monthly South Dakotan, Volume 3, April 1901 page 408. There's been a good deal of speculation as to how these springs receive the name they bear, and some ingenious romancer has given currency to the story of one Wessington, an engineer who was in the employ of the government, and was encamped with several companions at the spring on the fatal day of August 18th, 1862, the day the Indian uprising occurred at Redwood, Minnesota, and that at the very hour that the massacre occurred, a party of Sioux swooped down on Wessington and his men and massacred all but one who, escaping, reached the settlements and told of the harrowing tale. The writer accepted the tale in good faith and has related it in these pages, or at least mentioned it. The fact that Wessington was a teamster in Colonel Noble's party, or on the road to the hills, the oxen they had suffered greatly for water. Wessington set out to see if he could not find a watering place, and presently came upon the splendid springs of water that gush forth, and Colonel Nobles honored him by marking the find on the map as Wessington's Springs. Some years later, Wessington was killed in an Indian raid, but not in the vicinity of the springs. But all of the trapper and team leader versions of the story have some problems. Some of the analysis ahead is leaning heavily on research that was already done by historian Tom Shoney of Wessington Springs back in 1981. First off, the word Wessington is extremely rare and of some antiquity. Here it is actually described in a legal opinion from the year 1859 about how rare it is. The insufficiency of a Christian name to distinguish a particular individual where there were many that bore that same name led to the necessity of giving surnames, and a man was distinguished, in addition to his Christian name, in the great majority of cases, by the name of his estate, or the place where he was born, or where he dwelt, or where he had come from, as in the name of Washington, which was originally Wessington, which as its component parts indicate, means a person dwelling in the meadowland, where the creek runs in from the sea. So an extremely old English word for where a creek meets the sea doesn't really make a lot of sense as a name for an area on its own, and was not in common usage with most Americans who would have used the word Washington instead. But it is possible that it was someone's name, right? Well, maybe not. 
Thanks to the wonders of modern historical databases, I can tell you that not a single person in the United States had the last name of Wessington in the 1850 or the 1860 census. Not one. So if they were out there, it was extremely rare as a surname. Now, it's possible that the trapper lived a very off-the-grid life, and that would make sense for someone who was in engaged in that, uh, you know, being a trapper. Except that would mean that he had literally no family in the U.S. with the same name. Still possible, but the odds are getting extremely long. What about more direct records? We have the microfilm of literally hundreds of letters and records from Noble's road-building trip, but there's not one mention of anyone on the team. No teamsters, no team leaders, even labor, uh, anyone named Wessington. Absolutely no one on the expedition that we can tell was named Wessington. And then there's this. On August 30th, 1861, Governor Jane issued a proclamation pursuant to the governor's proclamation. Practically every able-bodied man in the territory, not already enrolled in the army, came forward and was registered in four companies. No name bearing any resemblance to the word Wessington is on any of those lists. And then there's the fur trapping legends. Lots of stories about Wessington state that he was a fur trapper or a trader in 1862 or 1863. So let's look at fur trapper records we have. The last year that a trader's license would be issued out of Fort Lookout, which was the closest point to Wessington Springs where that was still going on, was in 1840. The only company doing business in the Missouri region, the only fur company doing business in the Missouri region in 1863 was the Todd Frost and Company of Yankton. It's highly unlikely that anyone was in the fur business in the Wessington Hills area as late as 1863. In a letter in 1979 to historian Tom Shonley, Richard C. Crawford, who was the Natural Resources Department Civil Archives Division General Administrator, said, We have searched the pertinent records of the Bureau of Indian Affairs in the National Archives, and we have found no references to a fur trader by the name of Wessington. The record search include the Register of Traders Licenses from 1847 to 1873, the Register of Traders Licenses from 1876 to 1882, and the Register of Letters Received by the Bureau for 1863. Tom Shonley would go on to say that Volume 2 of the South Dakota Historical Collection deals with a great deal of the Minnesota Uprising and makes it quite evident that the Sioux of Minnesota were not assisted by the Sioux of the Missouri River area, nor did they, except in the case of going to North Dakota first, go west of the Sioux River. This makes that part of the legend of the Indian attack coming because of the uprising very doubtful. In the fall of 1863, a train of 130 wagons drawn by six oxen each were dispatched from Mankato, Minnesota, and passed through the prevalent area of Gerald County on its way to supply the starving Indians of Fort Thompson with food. The report of the route taken by Sean King, lieutenant of the engineers, to William Crook, colonel of the 6th Minnesota Volunteers, mentions the springs at the base of the hills. However... There is no mention of a name for these hills or springs. So was a white man killed at all by Indians at the Big Spring? The reports of Digest, the Indian commissioner for the time, contained such items as at Fort Defiance at the mouth of the Medicine Creek. Much dissatisfaction is caused by renegade white men who live with the Indians and who should be expelled from the country. The reports failed to name any of those termed renegade. The reports also say that about five white people each year were killed by Indians, but failed to name any of them. A list of white people killed by Indians between 1821 and 1880 does not list anyone by the 
the name of Wessington. Historian Tom Shonley goes on to say that, quote, In all my research, I have never been able to find a reference that indicates that the Sioux ever used burning as a means of torture or extermination. So nearly everyone who entered the area had to have his name on some kind of permanent record. That is, unless they were one of the renegades living with the Indians who was probably like a fugitive from creditors or justice back east. In 1863, Fort Thompson was established, and previous to that, its founder, Clark W. Thompson, passed through the hills twice. The friendly Winnebagos from Minnesota passed through here on their way to the reservation at Fort Thompson. Sully brought 250 women and children captives down the James River and passed the springs on the way to Fort Thompson in 1863. In all of these trips through the region, there is no mention of meeting any white people in the Big Spring area. So if there was never a person named Wessington, where did the name come from? The first printed use of the word to identify the area was by Sam Medry, an engineer for the Nobles Road, on a map submitted in January 18th of 1858 to the U.S. Department of the Interior. However, it wasn't the same word that we use. You see, he spelled it Washington, as in with an A instead of an E at the very beginning. So in the place of Wessington Springs, he had Washington Spring, uh, and it was also singular rather than plural. If you notice that year, it majorly undercuts the stories about it having anything to do with anybody from the Great Sioux War of 1862, since the name was already in some form floating around for the springs in 1858. And remember, we confirmed with microfilm that the expedition's letters, maps, and journals in those that there is no one in the group named Wessington, or even Washington for that matter. The first time the name gets used in the form we know it today appeared in a letter to James Harlan, Secretary of the Interior from W.W. W. Brookings, Superintendent of the Construction of the Minnesota Big Cheyenne Highway, which was built through present-day Gerald County area in 1865. It has been suggested that the word Wessington is Indian or French in origin rather than English. This may be a good assumption. As of right now, this is the theory I subscribe to based on everything that I found and reviewed. Because I'm legendarily bad with uh, the pronunciation of words that I should know that are English words, I've brought in an expert to help me with some of the Lakota and the French that we're going to dig into in the language to see if we can't find the origin or get a theory at least for the origin of the word Wessington. So in this interview, we're going to be referencing the work of historian Tom Shonley a lot. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about various words that he speculated in, that were Yankton words or French words or a combination that may have resulted in the creation of the word Wessington or something very close to it like Washington and then was Anglicanized into Wessington down the road. Now, he bases a lot of this on his interviews with uh, Yankton elders, as well as with uh, records that he found of, in 1838, Joseph N. Nicolette, a geographer who had arrived a short time before this from France. He was hired by the government to explore and map this area. His reports were done in the French language, basically with his French and Lakota mixing of names. Joseph N. Nicolette may have invented the name Wessington. We're going to talk it out in the interview, and you can decide for yourself. Oh, yeah. Uh, so my name is Armik, Armik Mirzayan. I'm a professor in uh, linguistics and Lakota language at the University of South Dakota. I got my uh, PhD in the University of Colorado in Boulder, and I worked on Lakota 
intonation and prosody on my dissertation. And so I've worked and studied with, I've studied Lakota and I've worked with Lakota language teachers and learners for language revitalization for a number of years. In terms of studying, I've studied it for about 20 years now. And in terms of uh, working with teachers and language revival, it's been since I finished my dissertation, which is about, wow, 10 years ago now. So it's been the past 10 years, approximately. And I work with teachers in Standing Rock, uh, Sitting Bull College in the summertime. And we teach classes on language, uh, basic language, intermediate language, uh, and uh, more advanced language. We have grammar courses like syntax and morphology. We have like transcription courses where learners learn how to write the language uh, based on older texts and newer texts and conversations. And we also do like teacher training. So we have a lot of uh, methods, methodology training for how do you teach the lang uh, language like Lakota or Dakota in a classroom. Thank you for coming on. Okay. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, just touching base real quick, I t uh, I've already I'll already at this point in the show have talked to the listeners about uh, Tom Shonley's, uh, you know, his kind of insights on the possible origins of the name. So if I go through these bullet points, if you just want to talk about them, and I apologize in advance both to you and the listeners for my pronunciations. My longtime listeners will know that I am notoriously bad at pronouncing names or words I haven't heard before. So uh -huh. uh, this, this... No, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I understand. You know, that's part of also language learning that we always learn. I'm, I myself, I should just also say from the beginning, I'm not a first language Lakota speaker. I'm not a, I'm not a culturally a first, first Nations person either. So it's all been a learning experience. So if I say things that sound like second language speaker pronunciation, I mean, I've studied it for long enough that I come closer maybe. But uh, as you know, like as adult learners, we never come to perfect pronunciation. We can only approach it. So so I myself, I'm not the most, like, I'm not going to be perfect either, whatever that perfection is. So, <laughs> okay. well, you're, yeah. well, you're, you're all good because I'm, I'm sure it will be <laughs> miles closer than I am, but, uh, well, we'll try. So, <laughs> uh, the, so the, the first point was, uh, and here, here's my first, my take here, the word, uh, mm -hmm. Wikikai, Wikikayan. Wikikainen oh, yeah. means mm -hmm. our people. Yeah. yeah. Um, what did you think about his so, theory about that word being a possible origin for Wessington? I mean, I think it's possible. And by the way, the pronunciation of the word is Wichiena. Thank you. Wichiena. So that C-H is a ch. And I don't know how it was written in the in the things you looked at because it gets written because so many different people have written Lakota and Dakota in different ways. And it's kind of gotten hard over history if you don't know who wrote the language to know how to pronounce it. So that's part of the learning process, I guess, too. So it is Wichiana. Wichiana. It's, um, it's funny you bring that up. I'm researching for the next episode, uh, Sikahalo or Sichihalo. Mm -hmm. And uh, the uh -huh. reason I accidentally call it Sika Hall, it's like, if I'm researching, I was looking for newspapers about it in the 1940s, and they spelled it mm -hmm. one way, and then in the 50s and 60s, they switched spellings, 
and then in modern times they spell it, you know, 60s moving forward, they spell it the way consistently now that the the national park is spelled mm-hmm. state park. But when yeah. you want when you want to research it, it's funny because you can't just search the word, you have to figure out the way they spelled it through three different mm-hmm. time periods. Yeah. Yeah, you do. You kind of have to look back at the history of the word and how it's spelled and look at the spelling, who spelled it, which way at the particular time and what influences they had. Yeah, It's kind of complicated, actually, even for one word to untangle it sometimes. But yeah, as far as I know, it's spelled, it's pronounced Wichiana. And um, in terms of meaning, I suppose it's possible that that's what it would have meant. Uh, the way I've been, and again, I'm not very... Uh, uh, I'm not uh, probably the most knowledgeable. I'm definitely not the most knowledgeable person on the history and the origin of these words. But uh, the way I understood Wichiana is it refers to the up to upper Yanktonai Dakota tribe that settled in Cannonball, North Dakota. Okay. So, but they do have a relation with the, of course, these, these uh, groups are all related. It's a dialect continuum in terms of language and in terms of culture as well. They're, they're related. They recognize each other as Ochetishakowi, which is the seven council fires, and that's how it's pronounced, Ochetishakowi. And um, you may have seen that actually in uh, newspapers or publications here and there. So, And that's also written in many different ways. Um, but Wichiana would be... Uh, it kind of uh, means, uh, and I told, I mentioned that probably in my email. Did I mention that? It's like something like, uh, uh, it's part, the word parts mean the, kind of means the people's speech. They talk, and so they, it has this little diminutive or endearing ending as well, the, the na ending, so. Yeah, I, I saw that. That was in the email. So you're- But I don't, it is possible that it's, uh, it was a, so. Would it be a reference then? What I didn't understand about that in the original discussion was: uh, Do you think that has to do with the name of a place before, or was it the name of a people in that area? Well, that got pronounced as Wessington. So that's that's what I'm not sure. Is I you know this is this is one of those where it would have come from. The French sources might have gotten it crossed over when they were like talking about the people from the Wessington Hills region and mm-hmm. might have gotten referenced with this word and the French picked up on that word and were like, oh, that's that's these people, that's this area. Um, no, it is possible, I think. It's just, yeah. I, I don't know what to say about that, but Wichiana and Wessington, and then it doesn't really explain that T-O-N ending. That we had. That's, uh, it doesn't sound quite like it to me with Wichiana. So. Yeah, that's true. And then part of me too is whichever you know, because we're going to talk about other words that we thought it could have been related to. But mm-hmm. part of me wonders too if because Wessington is an old English word. Apparently, it's the precursor to the word Washington. Uh, it basically, oh, yeah. it basically mm-hmm. means you live by a stream emptying into the ocean, which doesn't make a lot of sense for where Wessington is in South Dakota. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. But the, I mean, at least if it was like draining into a lake, big lake, maybe. Well, but uh, it was before Lake Ohio. So, I mean, not Ohio, but it was before they had done those dams. So, yep. my, my thinking is that whatever the original word was, 
they were like, oh, they must have misspelled it and meant this old word, English word, Wessington. So I'm wondering if it got corrected that way. Because uh, something I didn't mention in the email is that one of the earliest expeditions that did a map in the area uh, about the same time as some of this, or like after some of this speculation would have happened with the with the French uh, mapper out of Fort Pierre. Um, uh-huh, yeah. Actually, the the Noble Expedition, which was a group that came through, on their map they gave to the Library of Congress, which is thankfully digitally scanned, so even in the time of COVID, I could pull up the map from the Library of Congress and read it. Uh, they actually wrote the name as Washington. W-A-S-S. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah. Which is not anything in mm. English. <laughs> yeah. But uh, another... Uh, so what, what time period would, was that? Like around what time? That, that map was submitted to the Library of Congress in 1858. Oh, okay. So I think I've seen it, yeah. The expedition was like 1856. There was uh, the Lakota word... Uh, okay, here we go. Riton... Riton... Riton or the village on the mountain, which it seemed like that was the one you were most skeptical of. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, well, the thing is, it's not an R at all, but that H, that R-H-E-A, um, the old, if it's called, if it means village on the mountain, then it would be che. It's like a ch sound. It's really? a deeper fricative. So it would be chetum, okay. in, in Lakota and in Hangtumwa, Yangtun Dakota, it would be chetumwa. But then in Dakota, it would be Chetuma. So, but both of them have a Ch at the beginning. So that's, and the R, the early, like if you go look at the older missionaries writing the Dakota language, that Ch sound or the Ch sound were frequently written with an R because of the French Ch sound, right? Oh, sure. The R, so that has that French writing influence on it. Okay. So I don't know, but that doesn't sound like Washington to me. No, that doesn't. But I, again, I can kind of see if somebody mispronounced it maybe somehow. Yeah, absolutely. It's you know you're dealing. It's like dealing with a lot of people who are just seeing these words on paper, and that that's a far cry mm-hmm. from the actual encountering the word. Yeah, and the other thing is frequently. When we say che, the root, it's written H with a little, usually has a diacritic on it, and with a, with a vowel E, che. It usually means mountain. Like, okay. it, they're usually sharper, I would say, higher up. But it could also be a ridge, like a mountain ridge. So, I don't know. See, I, I mean, it's possible that it would be referring to that area, but usually che is like, like che sapa, or the black... Funnily enough, in English we say Black Hills, but right. in Lakota they translate more closely to Black Mountains, actually, Chesapa. So Che is mountain and Sapa is black, the color. I don't know if you've so, ever been to the area of the Westington Hills, but uh, it's a... I actually have. Mm-hmm. Okay. But yeah. it's it's a glacial moraine, so it's like when you're up on the like western ridge, like where I grew up, mm-hmm. where my family's ranch was, and you look mm-hmm. out you could see where someone could be like, man, you can see for miles and miles. So it's like, that's the only uh-huh. thing that made me think that this one could maybe be like what they're talking about, especially you get up to yeah. 
like Rose Hill and the the higher points, the flat land around it makes it seem very high. But yeah, in, yeah. in, in the context, it sounds like you're much like no, they really mean like Black Hills Mountains. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, uh, you, that would be a good research question too to look at what places do get the Khe name. And it's possible that, uh, yeah, I think one one thing that would be very good for this, and I have to say I haven't done it, if you look at place names over history and look at which places have the Khe root in them, then maybe that would help to see if it's a possibility that this place would also have the Khe root in it. Sure. I mean, if people people view things differently, you know, mountain and hill and, it's a lot of perspective is involved in it. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah. One, one of the words we looked at was uh, Wasikan. Oh yeah, the one with the, that you had written as W A S H I C O N, right? Yeah, that's the way he had it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's from what's his name? Was that uh, uh, that 1982 article, yeah. right? T- Tom, yeah. Sh- Tom Shonley. Surely, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that's also a common way I've seen the word written in a lot of places. And in fact, you'll even find some Lakota, Dakota, older textbooks that write it like that. And the pronunciation of that is, so the first part is like wash, W-A-S-H, so wash. So, but that C is a ch sound, so it's washichu. Washichu, okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh. And uh, it's like, uh, I've heard many stories of its origin, like splitting into parts what the word means. And then I don't know the etymology well enough of that word. And I'm confused because I've heard way too many stories on it. Sure. So I would say that um, it's hard to break it up now. It's kind of been fused together. Um, but it does refer to... Uh, uh, a white person, a person of European or Euro-American ancestry or culture. And I think at the first contact, it probably would have mostly meant uh, French because they were there first, before, and then if they knew of the other ones in the South, maybe the Spanish, but I've not heard that word applied to the Spanish. Yeah, most, uh, The most Spanish of one, they call it Spaiola, which are actually like comes from the word Spanish, Spa. What did you think of uh, Shonley's theory about the kind of the French version of it, where the Dakota were referred to by the French as the Nadouessi? Oh, yeah, I actually kind of like, and I, I, as you probably gathered from that email, yeah, I, I kind of like that one, actually, because I think it's, it's sort of because of that Wessington West being more clearly in there, maybe. It made me feel like that that is maybe the possibly a good or idea for its origin because uh, that uh, that Nadoesi, that uh, that word that came from uh, was sixteen forty one, right? Right. Father, yeah, what I can't remember his name now. Right. By Paul Lejeune, maybe right. Called them Nadoesi is what you had said. Yeah. Yeah. So the other thing is that uh, the word, like all those places you see, Sioux, Sioux Falls and Sioux City, the word Sioux itself, although it gets used in popular culture and it's been used in movies, it's been used in books, and there's even a linguistic group called Sioux Sioux Group, Sioux Linguistics, right? So, uh, but that word Sioux is not an endonym for the language at all. So people 
don't refer to themselves as Su. So that comes from actually um, the outsider's name for them. So uh, I believe Su is an exonym, and it's like from a French transcription of the originally Anishinaabe, the Ojibwe term, which was something like Naduesu, Naduesi or Naduesu. I don't know how to pronounce it. So that's how they referred to the, uh, what you would call the Great Sioux Nation, which included a lot of the Dakota at the time when the French came and uh, met the, came to the, uh, what, what became Minnesota area. So, so that's where it comes from, and I think maybe uh, the, the Dakota and Lakota, the Lakota went furthest west, further west. But uh, I can see how the movement in that direction would have given rise to possibly being almost like being Sioux town or something like in the name of a French transcription of Sioux, so Westington being that Wessi part of Nado Wessi. Yeah, I, I I'm kind of with you. This one sounds. This one sounds like our most probable, uh, you know, it's like, obviously we can't know for sure on any of these, but uh, this this is a good candidate. Yeah, I think that's a good one. But the other ones are a possibility. I think you would need more research. I think it's a good one, good, good thing to do, to go back and do some research on these place names, because a lot of them have interesting histories, actually. Yeah, I, I'll be honest, I was going to do like a little chronological history of my hometown, Wessington, mm-hmm. and uh, my first border of business was, well, when I was a kid, I heard all these different stories about how we got the name, so I'm going to find out once and for all how we got the name, and then that turned into, like, an entire podcast episode about yeah. the origin of that <laughs> Sometimes name. these things even turn into dissertations. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what it felt like. <laughs> The thing I was going to tell you also is add to this is I really like that uh, you brought up in your email the uh, the name of the elder Dakota elder actually uh, Eugene brother of all yeah and I I mentioned that to you because I think um, if there is a story recorded of him or his generation or people with that level of knowledge talking about the origin of place names I would actually pay attention to those carefully because I think uh, they were very knowledgeable of the landscape and their geography and they knew their history very well, those people. And I have a recording uh, in Dakota actually of brother, uh, brother Eugene brother of all talking about the origin of the Crow Creek Reservation That's and cool. uh, near Fort Thompson. And so he talks about how People were brought there, what kind of agreements were made. And then he talks about the flooding that happened. And it was recorded in what appears to be around the same time period, 1970s. <laughs> yeah, it, it looks like he, he did quite a bit of talking with uh, uh, Shonley. Uh, had, mm-hmm. had some pretty extensive interviews with him uh, mm-hmm. in the 70s. So yeah. I, I have that word that is was his word for the Westington Hills. Uh, which yeah, that's a, so that might be more of an endonym for it, or maybe his word, or maybe the local Dakota word after they were brought there sure. to, for the Crow Creek Reservation. So that's that would be what they might have called it. But how? Did and that's pronounced Iyakapte uh, I mean, if I were to say that as best as I can, if going with the meaning uphill and downhill, yeah. I'm going from the meaning and kind of translating back because that's not how I would write it. 
I think it would be something like uh, okay, yeah, very different than what Schoenle had written, but uh, yeah, honestly, but I if think I was, if I was would... trying to write out the sound phonetically, it, I, I yeah. don't think it would be too different from what he wrote, though. I So I can see it. Yeah, you know? yeah, I can see how he wrote it, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so like it kind of, I don't know how to translate that word. Uh, it's not, it's one of those words that like, uh, I don't know, like it. Uh, it's kind of like what we call... Uh, an adverb in languages like it has this sort of meaning that can be used to talk about ascending descending structure so it, if you say paha at the end which is what he had i think like that very last part the last two syllables it has p a h a h and that would be paha and that actually is the word for hill yeah i thought that was that was interesting and i thought that was cool you had an interview with with him what was that through the oral history project or is that something that you had in the language department no no that's before my time so i, I was like uh, not even sure if i was born when that was recorded it was oh. either 1971 or 72 but the recording i have is from the i don't know if you knew this but in the 1970s um, i ended up in university of colorado for my phd okay and so that's how I found this, because it was over there, actually. Oh. Because in the 1970s, there was a lingu two linguists by the name. One of them was my advisor, Dr. David Root, and the other one was Dr. Alan Taylor. And they were like American linguistic linguists, linguistic anthropologists that went around collecting and redocumenting and writing grammars of some of the languages of the plains. And so... They got a grant, I think, to develop Lakota language material for teaching. That was like way back when when Lakota language teaching first in schools was beginning to take off. Sure. And uh, in higher education anyway. And um, they went out and recorded a lot of fluent speakers in Pine Ridge, in Standing Rock, in Cheyenne River, and in Fort Thompson. Oh, yeah. And I think it was in Fort Thompson that they had recorded that. Uh, Eugene brother of all. And when, when you mentioned that name, I'm like, I know that name. from. <laughs> I know I've heard that person. But then I went through my archive that I had from University of Colorado, and I looked, and sure enough, it was there. <laughs> See, that, so. that's crazy. So that project must have been going on. Are you familiar with USD's uh, American Indian uh, the oh, yeah. history project? Okay. Oh, definitely. And that's one of the reasons I actually started working at USD is we wanted to actually, um, at the time, the chair of the Native Studies uh, Department, um, it was he, he's been uh, gone for a while now. He left and went to work somewhere else, but he's uh, Dr. Edward Valandra. He actually um, had that, uh, worked with getting that whole thing digitized, all of that stuff. They oh, started awesome. it, and now I think mostly it's digitized. I think there are access issues, so you should contact the library there to see. If, but that's another resource. I don't know if you've looked into it. There may be information on that in there. Well, I did. I, I did the, the search, and that's why I'm surprised you found something from uh, Eugene, brother of all, in there. Because I, I searched, and I was like, oh, it must be one that's in the the collection, but not listed in the digital catalog. But uh... Actually, I don't know if the oral history has this one. This one is from University of Colorado. It's yeah, not that, from University of Yeah. That's what you So I don't know. I mean, it should be in the collection, maybe. I don't know. It I, would be good to integrate those, probably. 
one of my favorite professors when I was at USD at the history department was, uh, this was like his very last year's teaching, uh, Herbert Hoover, who if you listen to those recordings oh, yeah. mm -hmm. from the 70s, he's the guy recording like half of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they have some amazing recordings in that oral history center. If anybody yeah, wants to do research, I think they should really look into that for other things as well, but also Lakota and Dakota. Yeah, because that's it has the American, I, I think it's the American Indian uh, Oral History Project, and then it has the mm -hmm. the South Dakota Oral History Project. So it's got recordings in there with like Bill, like uh, the guy who runs that was on a podcast not long ago. I I just listened to the interview, kind of researching for mm -hmm. this a little bit, and uh, he's saying there's recordings with like Janklow during his like second term and stuff like that in there. There's a yeah, actually there are a yeah. really really diverse. Uh, grouping of uh recordings from all over the place like uh yeah. do, doing my research about the Westington area in Westington Springs I was surprised to see some of the recordings they had there with uh, a Jewish woman who lived in uh Westington Springs in the 1880s and I'm just like what was that like you know that's oh wow incredible. yeah that's interesting wow so yeah the, I I definitely as this podcast keeps rolling plan on uh I haven't done any episodes that have leaned on it too heavily yet, but I definitely plan on digging into the oral history project and uh, yeah, and use utilizing it a lot. Yeah, and I, like I told you, I think I mentioned in the email, maybe I didn't. I went back and listened to that recording from Eugene Brotheroval again yeah. to see if he by any chance talked about this. <laughs> and maybe I... Because one of the difficulties and uh, with all, the, all of these oral histories and uh, old documents that we have from 1800s, early 1900s, and there's a lot of uh, stuff written in Dakota and Lakota. It's just a lot of it is not searchable. It's not like it's hard to... And when you find it, you don't know how they pronounced it because it was written differently by different people. Yep. And so... So, like, sort of correlating all of that has become a uh, has become difficult, actually. So, uh, there are different places now where we're working on actually trying to make those things more accessible and searchable. So you could actually search for. So, if you had documents that were transcribed, not just image files, but they were transcribed, whatever is written in there has a transcription that's searchable and available, both as a Lakota Dakota and also as a or French, if it has French and English. And so then you can actually search for pieces and it would be easier to discover things in there, or faster anyway. This point is kind of like you end up or sometimes luckily running into something. <laughs> Absolutely. And the audio is a bigger problem, right? Because like you don't even have an image then even. Yeah. And you have to like know where it is in the audio if it's an untranscribed audio, so... So that one from Eugene Brother of all, I had never transcribed it. Like I never, uh, because it's actually in the D dialect and I was studying the L dialect. Uh -huh. And as a young student, I was like, I'm not going to move into that dialect because I might get confused. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was in the D dialect. So I, 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 I didn't do it for a long time, but uh, then I looked back at it when my students were working on transcription a few years ago. And and then I've, I've I've like done little pieces of it, but I had never finished transcribing it. So, so I had to listen to it again to see. But but it's not in there. He doesn't talk about it. Darn. It's rather brief, actually. 
Yeah, it's not a very long recording. It's about 10 minutes. That's kind of amazing you remembered it, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the, re- the name really stood out because uh, he was on uh, several recordings. So, But uh, anyway, I, okay. I think I yeah. gave you 30 minutes and we went an hour, but uh, thank you Oh, so yeah, that's cool. No problem. Mm-hmm. It's, it's been a fantastic conversation, and this is super fascinating. Yeah. And yeah, thank you for getting in touch. It is an interesting question, and I never thought about it actually when I saw the name Wessington. <laughs> you know, my one thing I have to tell you: my son and I are both kind of into amateur storm chasing. So oh, we go sure. looking at storms when those summer storms or spring storms come, and we have been through there several times looking for storms. That's gonna say, uh, yeah, <laughs> so, I'll, I'll bet you have. As a kid who grew up, was like. Well, uh, my child is punctuated by the year that the pig barn that was 500 feet from our house got blown away. And, oh, no. And, and then oh, the, wow. three years later, when Grandpa's house was destroyed, and, you know, tornadoes. Oh, so these were tornadoes? Oh, yeah, tornadoes or straight line. Oh, wow. We get a lot of straight line wind that does a lot of crop Yeah, straight line wind is very too. common. But, yeah. We, we get the weather. <laughs> yeah, the elements are kind of harsh there. <laughs> Yes, they are. And the winter, of course. You have anything to plug? Is there any like programs or uh, anything you're involved in that you'd like the public more aware of that you'd uh, want to attach here at the end of the interview? I think one thing I would say right now is uh, if there are people uh, listening out there who are interested in Lakota language learning or Dakota language learning, there are a lot of uh, um, summer programs and institutes that are around um, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota that actually you can look into for learning, either whether it's a heritage language or if you are wanting to learn a language that's uh, uh, local, indigenous to the area, I think it would be a good place to look into this, those uh, summer institute programs that uh, that have sort of sprang up all over for, for the last 10, 15 years if people are interested. So those are the programs that I've worked with and I like them a lot. So I just want to put that word out there. So Awesome. Well, once mm-hmm. again, uh, thank you so much for this opportunity. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, you're very welcome. Mm-hmm. Welcome back. So as you can tell, there's no real good way that we'll ever know the origin of the word Wessington. Moving on to what I call part two, the horse thieves. The Wessington Hills were first mentioned in the Yankton Press in 1876. They were described as this. Our trip included a visit to the Wessington Hills, a locality in an unoccupied portion of Dakota about which little is known. It's not long after that that the Wessington Hills start developing a reputation with the first report in the territory written down of horse thieves using the hills as a base. Here's a report from the Press and Daily Dakotan, November 1878. Major Douglas received a telegram this morning notifying him that 11 ponies and a black horse were stolen from the Yankton Agency on Friday night. The thieves moved north with their plunder, and a band of Indians has been sent out on their trail. 
The stealing occurred close to the day of the distribution of annuity goods, and the Indians had not reached their homes. The Wessington Hills are the supposed destination of these thieves. This unexplored territory nestled neatly in eastern South Dakota made a convenient getaway point for any outlaw looking to hide. The system of draws and valleys can become very confusing to someone who's unfamiliar with the terrain. That same month, the hills would again become a refuge for outlaws in the newspaper. This is again from the Yankton newspaper in November of 1878. Deputy Marshal Bullock of Deadwood and a posse of 15 men arrived in Pier in pursuit of robbers who had made off with a $25,000 haul on the Cheyenne route a week ago or so. Just before they arrived in Pier, a man crossed the river to this side who was considered suspicious. He was of medium size, sandy-complexioned man, mounted on a bay horse branded U.S. He carried a needle gun and was careful not to let anyone handle his saddle. The man started from Pier in the direction of Firesteel, or more likely, the Wessington Hills. First off, yes, that's that Marshal Bullock from Deadwood. Second, $25,000 in 1878 is about $644,000 in uh, 2020 dollars. I was unable to confirm if they ever found the thief. According to some sources, the pioneers of the Wessington Hills area at this point are pretty much constantly having livestock go missing and occasionally glance at quote-unquote unscrupulous characters that no one knows traveling alone in the area. There's little locals can do other than complain to each other about the constant plague of theft. More thieves make the Yankton paper in February of 1879. The stolen mules have been recovered, but the thieves have made good their escape. They were pursued so closely that somewhere south of the Wessington Hills, they dropped the mules. The thieves are the same two who escaped from your United States jail in Yankton last fall. Hunter and Mollison, alias Morris and Smith. They have so far been successful in stealing about 30 head of horses from the Missouri River and Jim River settlements. This is the first unsuccessful operation they have made since their release from United States bondage. They are the most barefaced villains that we have ever heard of. They are seen every few weeks by the settlers in open day at various places resting themselves to be ready for a midnight run, when the chances afford them their spoil. We do hope that the next pursuit of these scoundrels may be successful in ending their career. It matters not if it be by lead or by rope. Man, newspapers don't write them like that anymore. And there isn't just one crew operating either. Here's another report of a solo operator from that year and area. The stable of C.E. Worthington of Herman was broken open and a valuable pony stolen from therein. The thief was pursued but escaped into the Wessington Hills. The spring of 1880 brought no sign of an end to the activity or even the beginning of it slowing down from the history of Gerald County. The spring of 1880 found the little band of settlers at the foot of the hills all in good health. They were somewhat curious as to the movements of strange men who mysteriously came, were seen about the hills for a few days, and then just as mysteriously disappeared. There were rumors of the existence of an organization of horse thieves and cattle rustlers that extended from below Sioux City to far up the Missouri River, with a station somewhere in these hills. It was hinted that the depot or stable existed in the Nicholson Gulch, but if it is so, it is so well hidden that none of the settlers chanced to find it. So far, the settlers were content to let the mysteries of the hills remain unsolved. 
During this time, officials and the Yankton newspaper speculated about this den of thieves as well. A gentleman who makes frequent trips into the upper country says he is certain that there is a horse thief gang, not less than 25 of the worst scoundrels on the frontier inside the Wessington Hills. They are completely armed and well organized for offensive and defensive operations. It is more probable that Maxwell and Bonhomme County escaped prisoners are with them. The later have been seen near Platte Creek a few days after their escape. these outlaws with a secret base in the middle of Dakota Territory. We don't have a lot of details on their membership, obviously that wouldn't have been documented. The group was pretty nebulous with gang members coming and going, and some joining for a time as members of Opportunity, like the escaped inmates mentioned earlier, or even natives mixed with white outlaws who made their homes in the draws and valleys. The group seems to have been surprisingly egalitarian and racially mixed for the time. In fact, one report published in a Yankton paper in May of 1880 implied that either the leader was a native or at least adopted a famous Sioux War chief's name as his own, from the Yankton paper of 1880. A band of outlaws which demand immediate attention are the Wessington Hills Gang, who for two years have had rendezvous in the section and made their hiding places deep in the ravines and high wooded hills from which their name derive. They are led by an outlaw named Red Cloud, who has collected about himself a band of followers as daring and desperate as himself. Two months ago, a party of surveyors engaged in running a line for the Milwaukee Road had occasion to penetrate one of the dark ravines of the Wessington Hills and ran across a band of nine men who motioned them back. One look at this outfit was enough, and the surveyors gracefully retired. Under the leadership of Red Cloud, the Wessington Band have made innumerable successful excursions into the country for a radius of many miles adjacent highway robbery and horse stealing being their principal exploits. The government proposes to thoroughly investigate this section during the coming summer. In Charles Mix County in October of 1880, Sheriff Pennymaker offered a reward of $300 for the arrest of John Sully, alias John Gillian, alias Jack Jones, and Frank Edwards, alias Frank Clark. $200 was offered for either of the men separately from each other. The settlers in the Westington Hills area were beginning to feel the pressure of having this gang operation so close. Here's a little more from the history of Gerald County. During the fall, several unaccountable things occurred to annoy the settlers. A few animals mysteriously disappeared and no traces of them could be found. The homes were too widely scattered and too few in number to render available and concerted any action. They had their suspicions, but could prove nothing, and the law and the courts were too far away to afford them any relief, even though the evidence could have been produced. The area was attached to Hanson County for judicial purposes, and there were no magistrates or police officers nearer than Mitchell. They suffered their losses as best they could, making no complaint except to each other. The houses of Strong, McCarter, and Tucker were all burned while the owners were away and under circumstances that made it impossible for the fires to have been accidental. Strong and Tucker abandoned their land and went away, but McCarter built another residence and prepared to stay through a long winter. 
The shanties of Paddock Stevens and J.A. Palmer were broken open and robbed while the proprietors were away from their home for a night. Palmer's shanty was torn down and the boards were scattered all over the prairie. Hudson Horsley had a fat cow among his animals that would have afforded a good supply of meat for his family during the winter. Shortly after winter set in, the cow was missing and was never heard from thereafter. One night, a span of horses disappeared from P.R. Bartlett's stable, and all search for them proved fruitless. Meanwhile, the mysterious strangers continued to come and go, but who they were, or what they were, or what their mission was, was only a matter of surmise. The winter of 1880-1881 was an absolutely brutal one in the area. It was so bad that the mail carrier between Wessington Springs and Mitchell got lost in a blizzard for two days. No one is sure why, but maybe the brutal winter had killed off or driven off the outlaws. But in 1881, it was actually a very quiet year for crime in the Wessington Hills. The Reverend A.B. Smart, whose theories about the Wessington Hills name we covered earlier, and you may recall I may have even called him the area's first historian, makes a trip to Huron and speaks with the local paper about his ambitions and plans to, quote, colonize the Wessington Hills in the name of education. Here's a quote from him or a description uh, from the Huron newspaper of that time. It has been customary to think of the Wessington Hills with a sort of dread and to believe that in the gulches and woods and hidden recesses, horse thieves of the border held high carnival and undisputed sway. Weird stories of the doings of these gentry have frequently gone over the country to chill the marrow of the owners of horse flesh and cattle, and lead them to increase their vigilance and strength of their corrals. It is no longer so. A transforming reformation to purify the atmosphere out there and the community is to be established which shall make the ragged old hills more famous in the future for morality, learning, and virtue which shall exist there than they have ever been known for vice and crime in the past. The Reverend's plan was to build a university near the site of Wessington Springs. His university will eventually be built, but that's a story for another episode. But first, the locals would have to deal with the horse thieves, because it turns out that 1881 was a temporary reprieve from the threat they posed. So we're about to go into an area of local legend versus what we know for sure versus what's in the region's newspapers. The following is from that 1910 edition of A History of Gerald County, and its version of how the locals in Wessington Springs and the surrounding areas finally defeated the horse thieves once and for all. It begins. Other losses were sustained, and settlers began to guard their stables with dog and gun. The presence of night riders was again reported, and the mysterious comings and goings of strange men, and some hangers-on who had no visible means of support, was the subject of much discussion in the neighborhood. The settlers, now sufficiently numerous to dare to protect themselves, and about September 1st, a move was set afoot to drive the lawless characters from the hills and the gulches once and for all. A party captured a young fellow whose actions appeared suspicious, and by threatening him with serious consequences if he did not reveal all he knew of the Desperados, obtained from him a full statement of who these thieves were, 
their place of rendezvous, and their method of operation. The boy was detained in an application made to Justice of the Peace Shyrock for a warrant for the arrest of all members of the gang. The warrant was issued and placed in the hands of C.W.P. Osgood, Constable. The news soon spread through the settlement that the raid was to be made on the horse thieves, supposedly somewhere in the gulches. The constable did not feel like searching the hills and ravines alone, and began to look about and gather a posse to assist him in the making of these arrests. While the constable was gathering assistance, a party of settlers, growing impatient and fearful that the Desperados would get into hiding, started to capture some of them before the constable could arrive. The result of this move was the shooting of one man and the escape of the fellow who was supposedly the leader of the horse thieves. Meanwhile, the constable was riding about with great bluster, calling for a posse and spreading news of the proposed arrest. In the midst of the excitement, William Bateman drove to the residence of Reverend J.G. Campbell and asked him to join in helping the officer serve the warrant. The minister readily assented and took his Winchester rifle set out with Bateman to join the constable. Mr. Osgood was satisfied with the acquisition of his force and immediately started for the ravine indicated by the boy's story as the hiding place of the men named in the warrant. At the entrance of the gulch indicated by the posse, they found a strange man, heavily armed, standing as sentinel, who commanded the party to halt, and then informed them that his instructions were not to allow anyone to go up this valley. "'Look here, my man,' said the minister. "'You come up and look in this buggy.' The man came to the vehicle and saw several rifles and revolvers lined up in the hay in the bottom of the box. "'Now,' said Campbell, "'it may be for your eternal welfare,' to here and hereafter to get into that buggy and ride along with us. I guess maybe your advice is good, replied the stranger as he climbed into the buggy and the party drove on. They ascended the ravine to where they expected to find the man they were looking for, but he was gone. The party returned to the mouth of the gulch and they separated. Campbell and Osgood going north along the foothills to look for the other man named in the warrant. Campbell and Osgood went to see the man that had been shot and found him suffering considerable pain and terribly frightened. The bullet had struck a rib, followed around his body to the back where it had passed out, giving the appearance that it had gone directly through him. Campbell probed the wound, having learned the course taken by the bullet, and assured the man that the injury was not fatal. He then sent for the Mrs. Dr. Weens to attend the injured fellow, and departed on his errand with the constable. It was afternoon when they had left home for their trip to the ravine, and it had taken considerable time. Night had now come, and the two men proceeded by starlight. After traveling a mile or two, they heard loud voices of men evidently intoxicated. The strangers were on foot and coming along the trail that the minister and the constable were following. Osgood at once recognized the voices of the men he wanted. He and Campbell got out of the buggy and took their weapons and advanced to meet the approaching group. The drunken men did not notice the constable and his companion until the minister stepped squarely in front of them and leveled his rifle and ordered them to throw up their hands. The men were dumbfounded but their hands went up instantly. Soon they realized they were facing a leveled rifle and two revolvers. Then their profanity became terrific, but lower their hands they dare not. They obeyed an order to two-faced about, and then stood still with uplifted hands until the constable had taken a brace of revolvers from each of them. They were put into the buggy and guarded by the constable and his companion, and were taken to Osgood's residence, where they were detained until the next day. A preliminary examination was held before the Justice Shyrock, and the settlers then realized that it was one thing to have suspicions well-founded, in fact to be fully convinced, and to feel they absolutely know a thing, and still not to be able to prove it. The boy was brought into court to clear the story that he had told the men who had threatened him, and he said it was all false, 
and had been told to save himself from punishment. The justice could do nothing but discharge the prisoners, except the young fellow, who spent a long time in jail in Plankington. The result, however, was effectual, and the settlers were no longer molested by desperados. The end. So, that 1910 version, it, uh, it leaves a few things out that we, we can pick up on from the newspaper records. For example, the boy who gave the false confession, he had done so because the punishment mentioned that the locals in Westington Springs were going to do was going to hang him that night. And according to the Press and Daily Dakotan, quote, The neighbors gathered in and put a rope around the young man's neck to hang him. Seeing a determined crowd around him, he agreed to tell them what he knew if it would spare his life. According to the Deadwood Pioneer Times, the name of the man that they shot was Charlie Williams. Charlie, while not having been convicted of any crime, would be crippled for the rest of his life from being shot by the posse. Two men... W.N. Hill and M.J. Thornton were charged with shooting Charlie Williams and were held on $500 bail, though they were eventually acquitted. And despite what the story says, this episode was not quite the end of horse thieves in the Westington Hills. The Black Hills Times reported that on November 7th, last night, O.B. Deering, better known as The Kid, a noted young horse thief under bonds to answer to the district court for stealing horses in Bonhomme County, broke jail in Chamberlain. He succeeded by breaking the hinges off a cell door and getting into the big cell and from there into the smaller one, and then he cut a hole in the floor that had been patched up before. After describing the location and direction of his trail in the light snow that morning, it was concluded that he probably made his way to the Wessington Hills, where the thieves are reported to be congregating or raiding again. On December 1st, a report reaches Yankton that a valuable team of horses has been stolen from Mr. Joseph Dickinson, a farmer of Lake County, about one week ago. The rogues got away with their bounty and are supposed to have gone to the Wessington Hills. This incident is only remarkable in that it's the last specific recorded case of the Wessington Hills being involved in horse thieving. That doesn't mean that the legacy of the hills diminished, though. For years afterwards, general information in newspapers would carry entries like this one from uh, December 15th in the Deadwood Pioneer Times. The headline, Where Our Old Road Agents Come From, the story. Every horse thief in the southern and central Dakota, and there are dozens there to one in the Black Hills region, retreats to the Westington Hills in Beetle County. These hills are in plain sight of the railroad track of Northwestern Road and are nothing more than high-rolling prairies. It is said that the section contains innumerable gullies, ravines, and crooked trails, and that it is not only difficult to hunt down an outlaw in them, but very difficult to find your way out after penetrating a section to even a limited extent. The Cold Spring stage robbers, who got away with bullion in 1878, were from there and were on their return home when they were compelled to drop their swag and skip fly light to escape their pursuers. Several large gold bricks were thus left and were found by Dr. Whitefield of Rapid City, near the Pier Road. This section is now thickly settled, yet the robbers hold their retreat there, and every day we read in our territorial exchanges about horses having been stolen by the gang and run into the Wessington Hills.
really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to do your own research or dig deeper into the sources I used in this episode, the full work cited for each episode is available to Patreon supporters of the show. Your donations help me access more books, more research databases, and other resources that I couldn't access otherwise, and that help me keep the show going. Donations are accepted through Venmo and Patreon. If you like and want to support the show, but don't have any money right now, that's totally cool. Not everyone can do that, but you'd be doing me a huge favor if you would share the show on social media, left a five-star review, or just told your friends about the show. It costs you nothing and it means the world to me. Once again... Uh, thank you so much for listening, everyone, uh, and we will see you all next month. Thank you, Sue Empire.